Yo, what up? This is Mike Brown. This is Alpha. And this is The Art of Letting Go. Letting go, letting go. Well, I like these acoustics. This is really helping my voice. <laughs> <laughs> so today we have a special guest. I will let her introduce herself. This is the first person that gave me my internship. Well, not my internship, my mentorship at the LGBT Center. Um, taught me a lot of skills as far as working with kids. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm doing it. You, you can look wherever you Okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my name is Nia Clark, and I am the former, former mentoring coordinator at LifeWorks, which is the mentorship program at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Um, in my role, provided one-on-one um, -on -one peer and group mentorship opportunities to LGBTQ youth and allies ages 24 and under. Uh, I have since moved on and become a consultant. So I've been working in child welfare now for almost 13 years. Um, started off as a residential counselor and then became a trainer in therapeutic crisis intervention. Um, uh, independent living skills training for youth called PIA, Preparing Adolescents for Young adult, Adulthood, uh, and now am working on a national level. So uh, right now I have two contracts with Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBT civil rights organization in America, um, teaching them on the needs of uh, LGBT foster youth. And then I am the national LGBTQ mentoring coach for Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. Wow. So I go around the country. We're working with 20 cities um, in 19 states right now, teaching them about uh, inclusion in uh, LGBT mentorship. That's beautiful. That yes. is amazing. <laughs> that's uh, not to say, you know, a resume, because that's, I think, I believe that from us talking about everything before, I can see your passion behind what it is that you do. And a lot of times when you hear you know, these big resumes of what people have done and sometimes they don't really care about it. They're just kind of doing it just to do it. Um, so to hear your passion behind it, um, what kind of got you started in wanting to kind of work in this field? I know it's not really interview, but I'm really interested because I'm hearing all this stuff and I've done it before. So what kind of got you into this field of doing this and made you want to continue to grow and, and move forward with it? So I spent um, 14 years in the foster care system in Boston, Massachusetts. I spent 14 years in 15 different placements in two states, so between Boston and Maryland. And when I aged out of the system at 22, the system hired me. Wow. And I've been doing that work ever since. So I went through a really, it was not a good experience for me. You know, I grew up um, with um, a very strong black mother but a single black mother who didn't really have as much um, knowledge of parenthood or what to do when you're upset. And so when she lost custody, I went right into a system that also did not know how to, to treat children. Um, and this is the 90s and yeah. the 2000s. So um, I just made it my mission to make it better than what I had. And so, you know, I had really bad experiences and I, I felt like the the adults in my life did not treat me well and it's it was really about their responses and now I get to be the adult who responds yeah and I get to teach other adults how to respond that's cool yeah that's really beautiful 
So it's on me. Um. So yeah, I. I guess I really wanted to talk to you about working with the youth and healing the youth because, um, you know, when I initially got in the program, one of the biggest things for me was I want to be the example that I didn't have, you know, but I also didn't know what that looked like to be able to do it. And, you know, just from talking to you now and recognizing, you know, post being in the program, I recognize being the example is simply just living my life and, um, you know, sharing my experiences. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have lost access to so much of our history as black folks. And so much of my work has been focused on youth of color, specifically black youth. Yes. Um, in a lot of the volunteering that I have done, I feel, um, you know, a lot of folks consider um, slavery um, and the transatlantic slave trade to be a part of black history, but I believe it's actually what interrupted black history. Wow. And so young people have not had, had access to the stories of survival, the stories of success. Um, and so they get wrapped up in what they may see in their neighborhoods and their communities, which isn't always great. And so having people who have the lived experience of, I got, I was in it. I don't know what it's like for you to be in it right now, but I was in it in my own way. And so I do have something to offer you. And also there can be reciprocity here. Yeah. So there's something that you can give me too. Right. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. Um, especially in the LGBT community. Uh, you know, I grew up in Houston. So my main examples of a gay black man were something that I saw on TV or something that I heard somebody say about a gay black man. So for a long time, I didn't even know that I was gay just because I felt like that's not me. You know, I'm yeah. not quote unquote feminine. I play sports, I'm quote unquote masculine. So for me, it was just like, nah, that's not me. But as I grew into my own life, I recognized like, that is not the standard. You know, the definition is whatever you want it to be. Yeah. So, you know, every day I step into a classroom or behind this microphone or whatever I'm doing, I feel like I am being that example that my younger self needed to know, like, this does exist. I can be myself and still be whatever, whatever you know, society doesn't set the standard of what I am. Yeah. I agree with that because I feel like a lot of times um, you can get caught up in who you're supposed to be, like who they say you're supposed to be, right? Like by standards. So if, say for instance, I'm going to a classroom and I have to abide by one of my rules and this is what my teacher looks like or this is what this person did instead of just being myself and all my, myself and my truth to translate into them, it doesn't really work, you know what I'm saying, as far as the buying like we were talking about earlier and the respect. Like, to me, everything boils down to respect. Even my relationship with God boils down to respect. Like, yeah, there's rules and different things like that in place, but I believe that the fear of the Lord is the respect. Like, I'm not going to do this because I respect you. You know what I'm saying? That's what it boils down to. And so, that's kind of how I live and work in, um, in the field that I work in, so I'm working with you and home skills and different stuff like that. But I wanted to ask you, at what point did you feel like you were able to move from um, being uh, foster youth to actually, like when did it become comfortable for you to actually start to share and teach and do certain things 
Um, because you know when they, you lived it, but then translating that life into teaching and art and communication is, can be two totally different things. Well, I actually got, um, I actually was embedded more in those more macro discussions, which is what you're really talking about. Those discussions around policy and making sure that the systems of care, at least in Massachusetts where I was living, were improved. And at the time, there were not a lot of really great policies on LGBT youth. And so I had, I was fortunate enough to actually have a natural mentor, not a formal mentor in some program, but I, you know, I was very fortunate to get a job already doing peer advocacy. So um, working in HIV AIDS prevention at 14, 15, and my boss there was someone who was seeing so many young people who looked just like me trying to access housing and being denied and knowing that the only way they could was if they were to zero convert and become HIV positive. That was the only way that they could guarantee housing. And so he said, we need to have more programming for these youth so they can see themselves in a role beyond um, benefiting from the system through making themselves sick. And so he start, actually started teaching us how to, um, how to train, how to be trainers, how to present yourself, how to write a training, put it together. And then he started embedding us in the community. So he brought us to the State House in Boston and had me sit down with, you know, Senator at the time, Cheryl Jakes, and advocate for more money and more funding for LGBT youth and systems of care. And then I want to say... For, I can't speak for all foster youth, but many of the foster youth that are now alumni, because it's a, it's a club you'll never leave. Yeah. You'll always be an alumni of yeah. care. Is, there's a click. There's always a click that happens. And not everybody gets it, but when you do get it, there is a shift from someone who is used to having decisions made for them to being a person who has to make all of the decisions for yourself. And so the young people that I have seen grow up, just like me, who are now adults and have considerable trouble in the community on their own independently, are the folks who have not had that click and are still waiting for someone to take care of them and to have those needs met. They're stuck in that moment of the things they didn't get, of the people who didn't treat them well and not been able to move beyond it. Are you you really taught, were you taught how to do that though? Or was that something that you had to kind of innately learn and look for. Because I know that working in within that community, I feel like a lot of times those skills aren't necessarily taught. Like to start to fend for yourself, the independent living skills. And they're, they're taught to a degree, but it's like, well, what works for you? You know what I'm saying? What works best for you? Like this is what I did, and this is how I live my life, but let's talk about how these things work for you. Like that, that might not compute to you. So do you think that there was more or something like growing up in foster care? I didn't grow up in foster care. So, I can, I've worked in the system, but I don't know anything about the lifestyle of living in the system. And so at what point do you feel like it was like, okay, this is where I'm going to start to pick up on this, or did somebody introduce that to you? I think it was an amalgam of both, because there are still things to this day that I have not picked up on as far as, you know, the skills that typical adults would, would, I guess, would have. I'm just learning how to to make a home for myself and actually nest. Mm-hmm. That's something that's really 
that I haven't seen as often. I, I've been in other homes where other things are set up. It's almost like being a guest star on a show mm-hmm. with a main cast, and hopefully they're going to bring you back yeah. for, the, for the rest of the season. That's what being in a foster home is sometimes like. So you kind of pick up little things here and there, and you learn that there are different ways that different homes do things. But for me, it was probably around 19. And I was 19, living in an independent living program. And at the time, they told me, that my, my case manager told me, you, either you get a job and you get yourself into school part-time, or you gotta find another place to live. You, you'll be out on the street. And so, me, I had not had that click yet. And so, what the first thing that came to mind, go and find someone that will take care of you. So these are like the AOL days, the chat room days, going and trying to find some man who was going to send me out to Tennessee or wherever and take care of me. And then I I, I happened to be in um, a Dunkin' Donuts and they said that they were hiring and I applied for the position and they they gave me the job and maybe within a couple of months I moved up from just a basic person on the counter to shift supervisor. Then from shift supervisor to assistant manager. And eventually I was managing my own store by the time I was 20, 21. And that was that click, that realization that, oh, I don't have to wait for the next thing to happen. I could just make it happen. Awesome. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I kind of feel like that that just happens in the process, in the, in the process of maturing. You know, because I think uh, at some point, at some parts of my life, because my parents, I say for the most part, my parents spoiled me quite a bit. And uh, when I went off to college, you know, it was it was definitely a transition of not being taken care of and having to learn that I had to take care of myself. And I think once I got out here in LA, that's when I really, for me, it clicked and it was like, okay, you got to start figuring this out on your own. and you know, taking care of yourself and stuff. And I really appreciate it, like you said, when, when you do get that click, you appreciate it more because now you're in a place where you understand, like, I can fend for myself and I can take care of myself. So, you know, I, I really appreciate that. I, and I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one other thing I will say is that the distinction here is, you know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s when I was in the system, you know, we were not, especially where I was living, we were not taken care of particularly well by the state, by okay. the larger entity. And so when it was time to go from placement to placement, they gave you trash bags. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so you literally would take everything that you owned and you put them in trash bags and you'd cart your trash bags from place to place to place. And what that does, and I've talked to other falsities about this is, you don't hold value in the things that belong to you because people have literally treated them like trash. And so that reparative work, that's something I still go through even today of valuing my things and wanting to take care of my stuff and making a home for myself and, you know, carving out a life and and looking at things of value and, and realizing, like, I can live beyond this age. So how do you how do you bring that value to the youth? Like how do you teach that to the youth? Because I know, especially in the community, there's a lot of homeless kids as well. And um, I'm sure forty percent, forty forty percent of the homeless youth in 
Los Angeles to LGBT actually. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do how do we when we get those opportunities to work with them? How do we teach them that value? I think number one, some of us older folks who've been through tough times, we harden ourselves to this reality that if I got through it, you can get through it too. And while that may be true, that's not something that's prescriptive of a young person's experience. Right. And we don't know that frame of reference that young person has. We can only speak to our own. And we may have um, had the fortitude and the strength to, you know, challenge adversity, but young people um, and, and people in general, like, we can't speak for the other. Right. Everyone has their own kind of sensitivity and vulnerability. Yeah. Not everyone is made to be really hard in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you have that frame of reference and you are working with young people and you keep that mentality, you'll make leaps and bounds with them. And then also, I meet them where they're at. Yeah. I am not holier than thou. Right. <laughs> I am not this big, huge, national anything. When I am sitting down one-on-one -on -one with a young person, I have the, the hope and the expectation that they're going to teach me just as I'm going to be able to teach them. And that, that takes a lot of authenticity and a lot of vulnerability. You know, I think you have to, uh, you have to show them who you really are yeah. in order for them to see that and feel that. You're right, because, oh, sorry. Um, because young people know fake. Absolutely. Young people have not learned about how to lie as yeah. well as we older adults have. Young people are more genuine. They're still, they're still growing and yeah. developmentally. And their brains are still structuring. And so many of the things that they do, they're more reactive. And they, they can sense BS. Absolutely. And so it's really good to be authentic with them. You know, I, I remember what it was like to be in a room with like a social worker or like some sort of counselor and have them talking to me like I was five, seven years younger than I really was. Yeah. And sometimes you have to talk to a person like they're in the room with you. Yeah. Sometimes adults, especially child welfare providers, don't know how to do that or they believe that they've been in the system for such a long time that they have this expertise. But just because you've been doing something a long time doesn't mean you've been doing it right. 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 Absolutely correct. Absolutely <laughs> 100%. And I've seen it happen a lot with, especially like, um, like you said, social workers and therapists. They go in a lot and sometimes they use a lot of the therapy jargon. And it's like, don't nobody talks like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, unless you're talking to your peer, nobody else talks like that. And so really, um, I think it's important to, to highlight that and to train on that. And it don't really... It's not always done, but it's something that I really try to incorporate when I'm working with the youth that I'm talking to as well. Like even to allow myself, if I curse them, it is what it is. Um, and I've seen that be more effective um, in my personal opinion. But I want to double back to the trash bag thing, because it still happens. Like it still happens. There's still, when the, when the kid is leaving, they give them a couple of sheets of paper that have a couple of other shelters on it that they could possibly go to. and. If they only came in with a trash bag and they have a trash bag and they leave with it. And my biggest thing um, is when an individual comes into a, even a shelter, right? Is there anything set up that they can learn something while they're here instead of just coming into the shelter and, okay, this is one more sleep. And then when I get up in the morning, I do whatever and that's it. Um, if there's, because you know certain grants don't allow you to do certain things. 
So in a situation like that, because that's kind of the situation that I'm in, um, what would you say would be the best approach as far as, because it's a lot of it's a lot of kids, mm -hmm. you know, so you can't get to all of them. But what would you say would be the best approach as far as like, okay, this isn't set up here, but let me try to still instill something into you to where you can take this to the next place you go, the next place you go, and hopefully you continue to grow and that's stuck. But there's nothing like there's no job program here set up for you. There's no writing program here set up for you. There's no art program. So is there anything that I can offer besides a bed? I think well, that's more that's more mezzo level. Okay. So that, <laughs> so that micro level stuff. You're talking about that one-on-one -on -one case management, that one-on-one -on -one talking to the young people. But the mezzo stuff, that's programmatic. Yeah. That is really encouraging. Um, your administrators to see the benefit in creating some development programming, mm -hmm. some youth development specifically. Mm -hmm. My best friend, um, Martello Conti, uh, who works, you know, worked at the Los Angeles LGBT Center with me, he started up some of these programs with not a dime, yeah. no money, yeah. nothing, just using some of his resources, reaching out to volunteers, okay. um, reaching out to different programs and seeing is there a way that we could partner even though it's going to be low cost, no cost, where we can actually work on youth development because you will continue to see a revolving door yeah, of absolutely. those young people until you give them a reason to want more for themselves. I agree with you 100%. And I, I definitely can take more, I can take accountability and say that I have not done that 100%. Um, but hearing that is something that I can, can, I can start to do. Just like you said earlier, you know, I'm learning from the youth just as they're learning from me. So a lot of times we'll be in a situation where we're having a conversation. I'll be like, oh, that was, okay, so I can apply that in my life. Um, so sitting here, the reason I say that is I'm asking you these questions because I'm like, oh, she has a lot of, like even after this, me and me Okay. Um, but there's a lot of gems that I feel like you have that I can learn from. Like right now, today, you can go online and access Casey Family Programs. They actually have the PIA curriculum that I'm talking about. So PIA is... Um, multiple module um, curriculum uh, intended to teach uh, youth and young adults independent living skills. So what is comparison shopping? So when you go into a grocery store, wh which can of tuna are you going to pick? Right. So you have an, a recipe you want to make, what kind of ingredients are you going to need to find? What about coupons? What about the CVS extra care card? Mm -hmm. What about making sure that when you go into an apartment, you go and flush that toilet, make sure the plumbing works correctly. Yeah. You make sure that there are not mouse traps. And you know, they, what things do you want to look for? Right. How do you use public transportation? Yeah. How do you? So you talking about how do people actually even get studio time? We were talking about studio yeah. time. How do you even get on the phone and say who you are and introduce yourself? You know how many teenagers and young adults I have worked with who don't know how to leave voicemails? Yeah. Who don't know what to say? They're so afraid. They're afraid they're gonna mess it up. They don't leave a return number, anything. So it's those basic skills. So Casey Family Programs has a great um, online curriculum that you can just download and you can do those modules. Now here's the distinction. When I had to do the PIA curriculum when I was in foster care, my social worker would just give me the book and say, fill it out and then return it to me when you're done with it. But that is not helping a young person with the hurdle. You really actually have to help them with the hurdles. This expectation that, say for instance, you, you walk up to a room and it's messy and you tell a young person, clean this room up, well, you can't go and do X, Y, and Z. If a young person doesn't know what it's like to be organized, 
all they're going to do is clean it up to what standard they think you want it to be, but not in a way that's going to keep it organized. So you have to give them that help, not do it for them, but be there in that moment in the doorway saying, okay, take all your clothes off the bed. Okay, here's the garbage here. Throw the trash away. Where are your school books? Put these up here. Where are your hygiene products? Put these here. Now we have all the clothes off the floor and on the bed. We're going to do some laundry now. Though that's hurdle help. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that also comes with passion, though. You know, because um, I and I say that because I look at like teaching. Like, you know, some teachers do just the bare minimum. Some go above and beyond. I think it's about how much passion you have and what you're doing with the youth. You know, I know for me as a sub, half the stuff that I do, I don't really have to do. You know what I mean? I can just come in, hand out packets, and sit down and just not care. But I make sure I greet the students just like their teachers do. I, I make sure. I, I'm present, you know what I mean? Because I really do care. So I think it, it comes down to that as well. You're right, I think it's important to be present and not just be present, but um, be open to the length of time it may take. Absolutely. Because, you know, even as, as a mentoring coordinator and someone who's worked with volunteers for such a long time, the one thing I hear, the feedback I often hear is, I don't see my mentorship or I don't see this relationship being successful. I don't see my impact. And sometimes you may not see that impact. If a kid is in it, like I said, I was in it and didn't have that click yet. If a young person is in it, they may not necessarily have the tools to learn or to take what you're saying and apply it to their lives. But you being a physical presence in spaces where you might otherwise not exist, that plants a seed. Absolutely. How many young people have come back not at 18, but at 22, at 23, and 24. And they say, you know what, Nia? I didn't listen. I had to be out there on my own. I was on the streets for a little while. I was engaging in sex work or, you know, I became HIV positive. But you know what? Having access to a mentor, having access to you or some sort of service you provided, it did plant that seed. And now I'm taking what you did give me and I'm applying it to my life now. And now my life is much better. And I agree with you because I know when I first started the mentorship, I had a struggle as far as connecting with my mentee. And I remember you just telling me how if I wanted that connection, I had to put in the work. So, you know, I knew I had to make more phone calls, send more emails. And I felt like we were actually building a connection. And even his mom told me that he felt connected to me because of that. So... I do agree with you, like you have to put in the work. And I think it's really with anything that you want to be successful at, you have to put in the work to be successful at it. And this is great, like I love this conversation because there's a lot about mentorship that you try to implement and you try to do, you know what I'm saying? Like you might even talking to a youth, I might say, I, I admittedly, like, give me a call. I'll call them a few times if they start responding, I'm like, well, I try, you know what I'm saying? But I can try harder than that. And I can do more than that. I, you're absolutely right. And what I will say is the best advice I can give you is don't take it personally. Right. Because when you take it personally, that's when you wipe, wash your hands clean yeah. in the situation. But the thing about mentorship is, um, this is actually, this is more um, about human behavior and development. And there's actually a theory around mentorship, and it's um, sociocultural theory. 
and there was this um, behaviorist, his name was um, Nagotsky, and he wrote about um, how a more experienced person teaches a person uh, who has less experience the ways of life, and that includes communication. Yeah. You have to actually, these young people don't know, you may have the expectation in your mind, like, if this were me and I had someone, some adult came in my life, I would be taking every advantage. But if you never learned how to be loved, if you never learned how to be cared for or attended to, that feeling may be very foreign to you. Right. You may question the motivations of that adult, like, what do they want from me? Because every other adult has said, I want something from you through their actions or through their words or through their body language or whatever. And so it, it's really about having the patience to teach them. That is also role modeling, is how do I show up? And once I've shown up and I have access to them, what do I do now to capture them in a way that I can change this, this dynamic, so that they will communicate better? And so that's what, you know, um, guided participation is the theory. It's guided participation is teaching someone um, about the ways of life. Communication, that's a big thing for folks of color, too. It is. Absolutely yeah. is. It most definitely is. I want to ask you, because we've been talking a lot about how we um, actively try to help the youth or do things, you know, to help everyone, really. Um, I want to ask you, what do you do for yourself as far as your own personal self-care? Like, what have you learned over the years really works for you? And if there were things that you may have done that you felt like, uh, that doesn't really work for me what do you do for yourself now? Like, how do you um, restore yourself to be able to go out and restore others? Yes. Yeah, so what we're really not talking about is burnout. Right. Because that is something that happens for all child welfare professionals if you don't have balance between home life and work life. Because I went through, I want to say the very first six, seven years of being in child welfare just facing a lot of burnout. In my mind, I was this young person who I just had been out of the system for a year. I had so much to teach these young people. I was going to come in. I was right. going to change the world. I was going to change their lives. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I realized, no, I have to, if I'm consistent and I set that table, even if they don't show up, they'll know that the table is set. And hopefully one day they'll come and have a meal with me. Yeah. And so once I make that separation and decided to have a home life, friends were really helpful. Um, really actually being intentional about my friendships, um, making sure not to vent too much about the things that went on at work. Because, you know, there's this program that I worked, um, worked at and it had a huge um, bump. It was a speed bump. And in order to get to the program, you had to drive and hit that bump and then you get to the parking structure. And we would always say, leave all your stuff at the bump. And once I realized that I could do that, I felt a lot more freedom in being able to go to work and be at work and then go home and be at home. And so that's something a lot of folks have to learn how to do if you're gonna work with young people because you will take it personally. I cannot promise you that you won't. Even now, today, on a national level, sometimes the way young people respond, I do take it personally. But I have to remember, for every what we do, there's a why we do it. That all behavior has meaning. And that it often represents a need or a feeling or a want. And that my job as a professional is to figure that out and teach a young person more effective ways to express it. Beautiful, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you a lot. And I really appreciate the work that you do. 
um, even just hearing you talk about it, and I can tell that you're amazing at it because you do it all the time. Like you're teaching now, you know? And so um, I just want to give you a round of applause for, for what you do, and uh, pray that you continue to do it because we need people like you in the world to teach, to live, and to be what we all aspire to be every single day. I think you're amazing. So tell the people where they can find you. Where can you find me? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have I don't have my own website. Okay. Um, you can um, social media. You can. Um, uh, so on Instagram, it's n.i.a.clark. Um, on Facebook, Mia Desiree Clark. Desiree like desire. Um, you can also check out Point Foundation. I just uh, became a Point Scholar. And nice. you can see, check out my bio on pointfoundation.org. Nice, nice. Where can people find you at, Mike? You can find me at Just Mike Brown on all social media. Uh, just underscore Mike Brown on Twitter. PrimoMiguel.com for all music. And uh, Just Mike Beats for all music that will be in this episode. And uh, you can find me at Alpha Presents, A-L-F-B-H-A underscore Presents um, on all social media. You can find us at the Art of Letting Go podcast on Instagram, uh, Facebook. We on Facebook? We on Facebook. Not just on Facebook. We on Facebook. Don't look for it on there, but it's coming. Um, uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Google Play, and we're going to be on some other stuff coming up soon. Um, but yeah. Anything else you all want to share before we get out of here? This is great. <laughs> this is a great experience. This is fun. And um, I would say to the both of you, keep doing what you're doing. Because we need those folks who provide um, uh, opportunities for telling our stories and telling our truths. And um, in a world where there's a lot of, uh, what is it, fake news is what yeah, it's called. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have someone who, you know, can offer opportunities for the truth to be told. So, that's great. And thank you again for being on the show. I really do appreciate that. So this is Mike Brown. This is Alpha. And this is The Art of Letting Go. Letting go, letting go. Yeah, peace, peace. <laughs> thank you. Right, that was, was that? Cool. That was perfect. Good.